today on Ag News Daily. Policy is always changing. There's always programs out there that producers need education. We're looking at ways that uh, farm policy could work to create better opportunities for both producers and consumers. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Dawson Schmidt. Dawson, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Just another slow day working from home. So just not too much going on besides sitting in my own little makeshift uh, home office. There you go. Do you have a blanket over your head? No, I I just pulled up a folding table and then the office chair sitting in the living room to kind of be comfortable, but in a space where I'm not going to be distracted. So that's pretty good. That's that's good. Uh, sometimes when I would when I broadcast from home, if I'm in an empty room or if there's a lot of echo or if I'm in like a hotel room traveling, I got to throw a blanket over my head so it dampens the sound. A little trick for you. I'll keep that in mind. Hopefully I'm not working from home too much, though. No, but if you're ever on the road and you need a little quick audio trick, that's the one. Except you get a little hot in there, but hey, that's okay. You go outside, you're going to get hot anyways. That's true. I'll definitely keep that in mind. (laughs) But uh, speaking of getting hot, we are continuing to see some dry weather scorch the west as well as the northwest and into the southeast. The top Republican on the Senate Ag Appropriations Subcommittee, Senator John Hoven, says he's going to be looking into some potential disaster assistance specifically, of course, for his home state of North Dakota, which has been one of the hardest hit by the drought. But he has asked the USDA to take some administrative steps to address the situation, including allowing emergency haying and grazing on CRP acres before August 1st. This is a pretty standard thing to have happen. We've talked about this for quite a few years on the podcast as we do see hot and dry up there in North Dakota. This has been a request made in years past, so I have a hard time believing it gets denied this year, but we're with a new administration, so it is hard to tell, but we could see some disaster coming out for farmers in uh, areas of drought or flooding here before we know it. Well, keeping in line with hot news that was circulating through the news wires today, the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which has been in the U.S. Senate for a few months now, I'm pretty sure, at least a month, uh, was recently passed today by the Senate in a 92 to 8 vote, and it was co-sponsored by 55 different senators, which makes it the first major piece of bipartisan legislation that would actually help farmers, ranchers, and even foresters reduce greenhouse gas emissions and build climate resilience through voluntary market-driven programs. So pretty much what the bill, if you go into and read it, it is trying to outline kind of getting things going with the carbon markets that we're seeing a lot of things circulating in the news and different companies trying to do things to reduce their carbon footprint. And right now we're just on a trial basis with private companies doing their own thing. There's not really a standardized way of doing it right now. And so the purpose of this bill was to have kind of a more, more of a consensus going on with the carbon markets. And so now that this has passed, uh, people are really congratulating that even Zippy Duval of the American Farm Bureau saying he appreciates that lawmakers are putting aside their differences to work on bipartisan solutions to the challenges facing farmers and ranchers. And this now that has passed the Senate is still yet to go to the House of Representatives. But to be honest, I don't really see there being much of a challenge getting it getting through that as well. 
Now, I think the real challenge, which you and I have talked a little bit about, is going to be actually how they put these credits and financial compensation components together. Dawson, I know you mentioned too, your mom works for a company or a gentleman that has had some insight into this. Have you had that discussion with them at all? I haven't yet, but he was interviewed recently and pretty much he's saying that there's different things that uh, are they're trying to figure out for the farmers as well as the companies that are buying the credits. But essentially, these software companies working with the credits are trying to give farmers another way of maybe getting a few more bucks for your acre, but mm-hmm. overall trying to increase sustainability as well as reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um and, but there just still does not seem to be a consensus on how farmers are paid, how much they're paid. Yeah. And it's, like I said, still trying to be a trial basis. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the other big question in my mind too is, you know, depending on the program and how they envision us going about collecting carbon, are there infrastructure costs or any sort of setup costs associated in that for farmers to be able to track things or, put any sort of new procedures or systems in place. So there are some of those questions still lingering, but I think we'll probably see a lot of movement on that front this year into next year, especially with USDA uh, now pushing it. But another thing the USDA pushed this morning was soybean and corn prices lower, unfortunately. But we saw a big decision come out earlier today by the Supreme Court. They reversed an appellate court decision that struck down threes, 2020 small refinery exemptions granted by the previous EPA administration. So back in January, just for a little history here, the 10th Circuit Court ruled that the EPA could not extend renewable fuel standard exemptions to small refineries whose waivers had already lapsed. But in a 6-3 to three decision, the conservative Supreme Court majority reversed that decision, saying there was nothing in the statute setting any limitation. So this is not friendly news for RIN prices, biodiesel, uh, ethanol, of course. And so this will, I'm sure, upset folks in those industries. But we saw corn prices plunge about 2.5% this afternoon. We saw soybean oil prices plummet, skyrocketing the announcement of that decision. Uh, drove futures about 6% lower. And so we will continue to see how this moves forward. This is not a win for American farmers, though, on any front. Keeping in line with market news, the recent court ruling by a federal judge that kind of that is that is overruling on the USDA's NIS, NSIS uh, speed line speed line provision is being kind of called on by different lawmakers to towards uh, USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack, 70 lawmakers that joined by Senator Chuck Grassley, Representative Jim Hagedorn and Dusty Johnson in the letters was asking the Biden administration to stop the recent court order from harming U.S. hog farmers. We've seen different groups come out, including the NVPC president, Jen Sorensen, saying that the saying that this will have a very harmful effect on the hog industry. They were quoting that from a Iowa State economist saying that it would really, really pretty much bottleneck hog supplies and potentially cause an $80 million loss to the industry just in 2020 alone. And so they're really trying to call on the USDA to kind of butt in. And it's 
unclear to me still on how much authority the USDA has in that ruling even. Yeah, that is a good question. And I don't have a lot of insight to shed on that one. Gonna be have to one gonna have to be one we dig into a little bit further. But uh, I have just one other quick piece of news here, Dawson, before we chat markets for today. Uh, Just a little quick piece of news, really. But I saw, read this morning that AgroConsults, which is a private firm, has just once again lowered their Brazilian Safrina corn crop estimates down another 900,000 metric tons, now sitting at about 65.3 million tons. So they have really uh, spiked things down here. We do have, of course, the grain, quarterly grain stocks and acreage report coming up next week. But following that, we'll see the WAS report and see if USDA steps in here to adjust once again, the Brazilian Safrina corn crop. But that we don't know yet exactly, of course, what Brazil has produced, but uh, we do continue to see weather down there impacting how this crop is shaking out. And it's still pretty early on in our growing season, although we have had some pretty key rains here in parts of eastern Nebraska, southern parts of Iowa and central Illinois. We've seen about two inches of rain here the past couple of days, but there's still a lot of time left in this growing season to see how this crop shakes out, but could really significantly impact global supplies if we do see uh, Brazil continue to cut down their production estimates. And then you couple that with some sort of weather issue here in the United States, and things could get interesting later on this summer. I think so. It sounds like a lot of people are on edge. And Mm -hmm. really, if you're not getting rain, you're probably getting too much rain. And that's really causing an issue with how people are feeling going into this harvest. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you're not getting any rain, you're either getting no rain or getting too much. So like you said there, uh, a lot of people are on edge about it and the markets are continuing to be on edge. There's a lot of pressure going on right now in the markets due to all of the rainfall that we're getting in a few key growing areas, as I mentioned there. But Dawson, before we chat markets, did you have any other news our listeners should be aware of for today? Well, it's not a big thing of news, but it's definitely development. So a couple months ago, I don't know if the Ag News Daily covered this story, but we did at Trader PhD where uh, a family actually, a farming family actually defrauded Tyson in another unknown unknown company for $244 million in cost for buying buying and feeding hundreds of thousands of cattle. The only problem with that is that they didn't exist. And that was the Easter Day family, if any of you have heard of that story. But after filing for bankruptcy, when Cody Easter Day pled guilty, uh, the land was up for auction as well as all of its assets. And recently, that land was just bought by a Mormon church group that ended up outbidding the Bill Gates Foundation. Now, that was a surprise to me is that in the newswire, we've heard a lot of stories about how much the Gates family actually owned as far as farmland. So that came as a surprise to me that someone had actually upfitted them. And that was only by about a million dollars. And so that actually, that ended up selling for 209 million. That's a pretty penny, pretty steep there. I would say so. So I, I don't, not too familiar on the group that ended up buying it, but I guess they had the money to spend for it. It sounds like that's the case. But unfortunately, we know we've been hearing a lot more stories like this 
of folks buying cattle or buying livestock and the head hasn't existed. They're buying and selling things that aren't there. Yeah, it definitely sounds like we're trying to find different ways to really, you know, keep that from happening, but it doesn't sound like that's been at tip or at the top of people's minds as far as the prevention part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But maybe that will come uh, to light here as USDA and folks in Congress continue to push forward on some sort of uh, update here to the beef industry rules and guidelines, especially on the packer side of things. But I tell you what, that is all the news I have for today. And Dawson, I know you're out as well. So let's hop in here in chat markets, because as I mentioned, there was a lot of pressure today, especially on the announcement partway through the day that uh, waivers would not continue to be granted and they would reverse the decision on those three from 2020. We've seen a lot of downward slide here in the grain markets, of course, and we're going to chat about this and more with Elaine Cub coming up on Monday's Hashtag Market Monday episode ahead of next week's big reports. But in the meantime, July corn today closed down 16 and three quarters cents to close at 6.36 and a half. The Deese down 16 and three quarters cents to close at 5.19 and a quarter. July soybeans today down 41 and a half cents to close at 13.29 and three quarters. The November down 22 to close at 12.69 and three quarters. Chicago wheat had weakness today as the July contract shed 14 and a quarter cent to close at 6.37. The September down 11 and a quarter to close at 6.40 and three quarters. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets today, we had green across the screen. The August live cattle contract up 17 and a half cents to close at 122.80. October up 12 and a half cents to close at 128.40. And in feeder cattle today, the strength continued as the August contract added 240 to close at 159.55. The September, a buck, excuse me, two bucks higher to end at 161.25. And in lean hogs today, we saw the July contract up a dollar ninety-two and a half to close at 101.95. The August up a dollar oh seven and a half to close at 99.77 and a half. And lastly, wrapping things up here with a class three dairy milk futures. The July contract up a dime today to close at 16.67. August adding three pennies to close at 16.63. Now for today's ag grad. 30 under 30 interview, we are talking to Ben Brown. Well, for today's 30 under 30 feature, we are talking to Ben Brown, who is an extension economist at the University of Missouri, and he also works with the Food and Agriculture Policy Research Institute. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. So before we get started talking about what you do right now at the University of Missouri and with the Research Institute, let's hear a little bit more about your background. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up on a cow-calf and diversified crop production operation in western Missouri, west central Missouri, and had the opportunity to be involved in 4-H and FFA. Got to see through the 4-H program really what being a part of a land-grant institution is like. And then through FFA, got to experience life working with agribusinesses and different types of opportunities within the agriculture sector. After high school, I went to Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas, and received my bachelor's degree in agriculture economics, where I did a study abroad to Brazil and did internships along the way. One that led me to East Central Iowa, where I worked with farmers in that region on risk management. And that's where I found a love and a passion for you know, helping producers mitigate the risks that they face every day, whether that be policy, financial, uh, human resource risk, 
production risk, uh, you know, all those categories face farmers on a daily basis. And so uh, getting to experience how, how those farmers operate within those realms was a real treat for me and inspired me to go back to grad school. And so I came back to the University of, or I came to the University of Missouri uh, and had the opportunity to get a master's degree with the Food Policy and Agriculture uh, Research Institute here at the university, or FAPRI for short. Uh, FAPRI is is one of the the main uh, modeling institutions for food and ag research across the the country, but even across the world. We have partners in South Africa, in Ireland, and other places around the globe. But our main our main work centers on building out baselines of you know what we know today. And modeling that out 10 years, running it 500 times and taking into account different weather scenarios. And then when Congress is looking for changes in policy, so think of federal farm bill policy uh, and whether that's the crop title, whether that's you know crop insurance, nutrition, basically ideas that they have and they want to see how that impacts the sector. They ask us to run that through our model and we can then capture the change from the baseline in terms of the impacts. And then we have a partner at Texas A&M, that they have representative farms across the the country, where then we take those results and we run those through farm-level analysis to see what the impact is at the farm level. And so then we can funnel those back up to D.C. And the whole practice of this is just to inform politicians and those that are making decisions and to make better policy. And so I had the opportunity to go to grad school here and do that. And then after grad school, I got hired at Ohio State University, uh, ran their farm management program, did research, education, extension in the areas of farm risk management. And then at the beginning of January of 2021, I had the opportunity to come back to Missouri. Uh, Position opened up and had the opportunity to come back here to, to Missouri, which gets me eight hours closer to my family and do basically some of the same things I was doing in Ohio just for the state of Missouri. So. That's my background. Well, Ben, that's a a lot to take in. And it sounds like it's been a fantastic experience up to this point. And I think that some of that experience also has to do with your research, because it sounds like you've done some exciting things, because some of that research was included in the 2018 Farm Bill. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, So we were looking at ways that uh, farm policy could work to create better opportunities for both producers and consumers. And for those that don't follow federal farm policy, every so many years, the federal safety net goes through what we call a life cycle change, where we basically have an overhaul. Uh, 1996 was, was a major overhaul in federal farm bill policy. And then we basically operated with just minor tweaks in farm bills and farm policy up until 2014. And so when we went through the 2014 farm bill cycle, we had a major change in the farm risk management, the public risk management offered to producers across the country. And so a lot of education was needed, but it also offered up opportunities uh, to come up with adaptations to that, of which my research worked in that area. And then some of that was was picked up and and used and supported uh, to help create the 2018 federal farm bill. That's really exciting, Ben. I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity or something right now. So that's that's really cool. And congratulations for all of that being recognized and all of your hard work. But let's talk a little bit more about what you're doing right now at the University of Missouri. What does your day-to-day typically look like? Well, the, the nice thing about my job is every single day looks different than the day before. Um, and I don't expect that to change anytime in the future. 
So very similar to what I was doing at Ohio State is I get the opportunity to work with producers, agribusinesses, and stakeholders within the industry, whoever that might be, on a day-to-day basis, answering questions related to agriculture production systems, uh, you know, risk management as it relates to you know what we consider to be the five buckets of, of risk management. And every day is exciting because the problems are always different. The people that we get to work with are different. And, you know, agriculture is just a great sector. And so, as I mentioned in my intro, you know, the opportunity to go to Iowa and see some of their risk management structure or strategies uh, was was really kind of an eye-opening experience. Because even though I grew up on a farm my entire life, there was a lot of things that we gained by, or a lot of things I gained by visiting other farms and seeing how they integrated uh, risk management into their businesses. And so now um, I get to do that for a living, basically go and visit all these different types of farms and see how operations are adapting and dealing with changes or risk, and then find ways to share that with others to make their business better. And it's a extension is a very rewarding you know, career um, from the fact that we get to work with such a vast group of, of people. Um, but it's also an exciting opportunity because um, I present different topics almost on a daily basis to a different group of, of participants. And some of those participants might have information or ideas that, in, that then shape what I'm delivering to maybe a different group of audience the next time I you know go out and talk on that same topic. And so, um, you know, every day is different um, and it kind of depends on the, the, t- the time of the year um, and sometimes the conditions that we've seen. I, I kind of joked, you know, my first four years in, in my career, every year was a, a major event. So the first year of my career, uh, we were dealing with, you know, the, the trade you know, wars or trade tension between the United States and China. And we were dealing with a lot of issues of how to handle that. Uh, the second year, we went through a prevent plant marathon um, to where, you know, producers in Ohio just couldn't get planted. And so every day I had people calling and asking about different things that we had just never had to deal with before or think through because we just not had those conditions. And then, of course, last year, everything that that worked and related with COVID. And so, um, again, policy is always changing. There's always programs out there that producers need education um, on and, and, you know, advice on how to handle those 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 topics. Uh, and then grain marketing never goes away either. We always have opportunities for improved grain marketing strategies within within farm and, and livestock, grain and livestock marketing within farm operations. So every day is different. Uh, that was a long way of saying every day is different. And the work never is uh, less than a pile on my desk of things that need to be done. So. So, Ben, is there a certain trend when it comes to risk and re- risk management that we're seeing this year? Is anything crazy going on right now like that has been for the past couple of years for you? Yeah, sure. So when um, I think about current times and, and really everything kind of relates to the, you know, the pandemic and, and some of the major changes that were implemented during the pandemic, one of those being, you know, increases in government funded assistance, whether that be, you know, market based or whether that just be income transfer or, you know, the, the income support through added ad hoc stimulus payments, that's all finding its way into our markets right now. And, and we're certainly seeing you know, challenges within the ag sector. I'll start first with the commodity markets. It used to be you know, pretty extreme to see commodity markets move 20 to 25 cents in a day. Uh, last week, we saw a day where uh, soybeans were down $1.10 and plus, you know, $1.12 uh, in one day. And then the next day, they were up 66 cents. 
that type of movement is, is unheard of. And we just never have seen that before. And again, that's money working its way through commodity markets. We can also apply that to land values. Uh, land values have been pretty consistently increasing at about four to five percent a year, somewhere in that that ballpark. This year, we're looking at returns, uh, or excuse me, land value increases anywhere between ten and twenty percent. Um, so, just rapid increases in, in the value of land that's creating challenges for beginning farmers and ranchers to to start uh, and to grow their business. And then on the other side, uh, access to labor is always a challenge, and so we do a lot of work in terms of recruiting. Uh, retaining and training employees. And certainly I don't see that going away anytime soon either. So a lot of issues that um, have always been in the background, but have probably become exacerbated during uh, the pandemic. Well, Ben, I just have one more question for you before I let you go. And that's just being, where do you see yourself within the next, you know, five years or so is being in extension economist, is that end game for you? So I love my job. And I tell people all the time that I'm pretty sure I was built uh, to do this. I, I also tell people I'm a product of land grant institutions. I grew up in the 4-H system. I have degrees from, from two land grant institutions. And I worked at a third land grant institution being Ohio State University. And so I love um, being a part of the land grant model. Um, I enjoy working and helping producers on a daily day basis. Um, I probably would not have left my job at Ohio State if it hadn't have been for the opportunity to come back home and move back to my home state to be closer to my family farm and my parents. Um, and that's the beauty of what we do in extension is there's ways to kind of continue to build up a career um, and to continue to gain you know, more responsibilities and continue to work while remaining in the extension. So, you know, if I had to say within the next five and I would even go out 10 years, 15 years, um, you know, I don't see myself leaving uh, being an extension economist. But what I do might, you know, might morph. Um, you know, some years it might be more policy focused. Some years it might be more market focused. Other years it might be more farm management. Um, but I expect that risk management to be always in there. And, and like I said, I love my job at an extension. It's a very rewarding career. Um, and thankfully, you know, the Food and Ag Policy Research Institute is is international. Um, and so I still get to work with those people in Ohio that I worked with for four years when I was there. So really enjoy the opportunity to to do what I do. I definitely think that it takes a special kind of person to deal with risks and, and manage those risks. So, Ben, I would probably agree with you that you're built for this. But thank you again once more for coming on and chatting with us. And congratulations for being a part of the 30 Under 30 cohort. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, again, a big thank you there to Ben for coming on and chatting with us today for the AGRAD 30 Under 30 segment. Really cool stuff he's doing there. He'd probably have a few things to share about the commodity markets right now, Dawson. That's for sure with his role there as a professor of risk management. I'm not going to lie. That was not one of my favorite classes in college to take. Yeah, I can't say that I've had to take that yet. I only taking just a couple economics classes. So we'll see what I end up doing to finish out my time at Iowa State. Yeah, we need to get you in some economic classes so you can uh, start asking questions when we have Market Mondays. True. I will. I plan on taking at least the intro class, but I don't know how much I'll actually need to know for the intro after having my internship, you know, kind of be done by then. That's true. That's true. 
Well, folks, that does it for another Ag News Daily episode here on the podcast. But if you missed any of our past episodes this week, head over to agnewsdaily.com and get caught up on those this weekend while you're out enjoying the nice, warm weather, maybe a little rain for some of you. With that, Dawson, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.